Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. Welcome to On the Verge. This is Zach Spetton, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. And on tonight's episode, we're going to get into one of the biggest topics of this offseason, which is the players that the Orioles should, could, might, or might not protect for the upcoming Rule 5 draft. In addition, we're also going to get into some recent news about the player development staff for 2022, as well as some quotes from uh, hitting coach Tim Gibbons, who's currently out in the Arizona Fall League, that he served Rock Cabado recently about a couple of the prospects that we found interesting and want to discuss. So we'll get into that in a moment. But first, On the Verge is brought to you courtesy of Mercer Floor and Home Carpet One. Mercer is a third-generation family business that was established in 1959 and is located on Main Street in beautiful, historic downtown Westminster, Maryland. For all of your flooring needs, think Mercer. Now, as our listeners know, we do have a Patreon community, and each week we like to shout out the new members of that community. I'm going to let Bob uh, do that for us this week. Yeah, we got two new Jameses. We got James McCann. I'm sure that's the former catcher in the major leagues. And James Everwine. So thank you guys for joining up. Yeah, thank you both. And Bob, great to have you back. Uh, I know you were down at Disney last week. And while before we really get into the meat of this show, did any of the Disney characters have thoughts about Orioles prospects that they really wanted to ask you? Well, first of all, they said the Orioles are ruining baseball. And everything they do is wrong. So they're right in line with the, the media at large. So no, it's good to be back. Disney was fun, but exhausting. My back is killing me. So I feel like an over-the-hill first base prospect or player right now. All right, Yusino well, Diaz, get back on the, the IL, I guess, for next week. <laughs> yeah. Or, uh, yeah, I feel like Albert Pujols. That's really old. Yeah, but Albert Pujols is coming back next year. Hey, I came back, didn't I? Yeah, you did. <laughs> So uh, we'll start off with some news concerning the player development staff for 2022. This has not been announced by the Orioles, I don't think officially, but those joining the Orioles development staff have taken to Twitter to announce the move themselves. The big one is Forrest Herman, who was coming over from the Reds organization to become the pitching coach at High A Aberdeen. Herman was with High A Daytona, or excuse me, Low A Daytona last year in the Reds system. Prior to joining the Reds in 2020, he was part of the Seattle Mariners organization um, and has had a role, uh, had had roles elsewhere before that. So he will now come over to Aberdeen. And in addition, um, the Orioles are picking up a coach from Wake Forest Pitching Lab in uh, Joey Mylot, who is going to take over, according to his Twitter, as a biomechanic uh, for the Orioles. So a couple of interesting hires here, and I'll start with Nick. Uh, just your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, Herman is definitely, I mean, he brings the experience, and I think the Reds showed a lot of development, especially as far as pitching. I know they've had a couple a couple of top pitching pro- prospects, like Hunter Green sticks out uh, instantly, a guy who's been hurt for a couple of years now, and I think he had a really successful 2021 season. I don't know how much work Herman had specifically with him, but just the Reds, System in general seemed to have a pretty solid 2021 season. Uh, but my favorite here, and again, I don't, I haven't had time to like really dive into these guys. I'm not going to be, I'm not an expert on pitching coaches and, you know, instructors from the college ranks. But 
to hire someone from Wake Forest, like, I mean, just if you don't know what Wake Forest is doing in terms of pitching development, like, you might want to take a look. When February rolls around, watch a couple of Wake Forest baseball games. I mean, this program is really doing things right. Uh, and major league teams are turning to Wake Forest for information, for feedback on when it comes to like the analytics and pitching development and what they're doing at that laboratory. So to get Joey Mylot here, I'm sure he's going to be a great addition to this organization. I know if you go to his Twitter page, he's got a blog there. I did read some of his blog posts. You'll walk away impressed. And so I think this is a the types of hires that I mentioned earlier in our prediction show when we talked about you know who future coaches would be, young, innovative guys that are going to turn this Orioles organization into an innovative franchise. Believe it or not, like I know it's really hard to believe, but I think the Orioles are on the path to becoming innovators instead of this 1930s organization. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure the Orioles were announced everybody all at once in a future tweet or something, a press release. But yeah, I love the, the Wake Forest uh, signing or hiring, should I say. Um, instead of sending our pitchers to Wake Forest, they're uh, bringing Wake Forest to our pitchers, which is pretty cool. And then Herman, I know, I think Kyle Body was uh, a part of bringing him into the Reds organization. And he has those pretty advanced, uh, you know, develop p- pitching development plans that, uh, I think Elias and company are into as well. And since body's gone, might as well steal him from them. Yeah. Herman, just to give a little bit more background, he was a pitching strategist with the Mariners during the 2019 season prior to joining Seattle. He spent three years at premier pitching performance in St. Louis. Uh, He was supposed to have been the pitching coach at rookie level Billings in 2020, but that was, that season was wiped out because of the pandemic, but he did work with players remotely during that stretch. So he brings over a good bit of player development experience, despite someone I believe is in his late twenties. I, I love that you bring in these young players, or young players, these young coaches, these young analysts, these young instructors, like out with the old and with the new. You're bringing in these instructors and analysts. You're drafting kids out of programs who match these new philosophies that the Orioles are bringing in that have experience with working with these younger guys, like a Joey Mylot, who's a very young uh, uh, analyst here. And I think that's just a perfect marriage. And I think it's going to pay off in the long run. Like I said, they're on the path to becoming uh, an innovative franchise here. And maybe I might be blowing all that up because it's the Orioles and we're finally getting something. I know every team hires you know men and women like this, but it's exciting to see the Orioles finally go down this path. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I have to assume that it's better when you're a, a young player to have a young coach that maybe you can relate to a little bit better, not some old uh, stogie who's just telling you what to do. I don't know. I have no idea how it works, but it seems fair to me. You know, it would be interesting to get insight on that from a player, especially one that maybe has some experience out of driveline or a similar academy, because I think it's always been expected or assumed that a coach in the minor leagues is going to be a former player, ideally a former major leaguer that's, you know, a few years removed from his career and not necessarily somebody who may have pitched at the college level or played at the college level and then moved into sort of this analytical coaching position uh, with, you know, some type of academy before getting hired by a major league organization. And I just think interviews from prospects, like these guys are really buying into what the world are doing. They're buying into the local side of things and which is really good to see too. So, I mean, it's, Seeing, you're seeing this marriage put together, I think it's come along fairly well so far. We've already seen small sample size. I know we've only had like one full season, uh, but we saw the jump, like, especially the trucks. 
in the transition year. Hopefully that starts to and we'll see this pipeline come in maybe later because we still that nature and yes. So we'll um look now at some quotes that Tim Gibbons gave to Rock Abato at Mass and Rock has had a couple of articles with Gibbons where he's talked about some of the hitters in the Orioles system. Gibbons is out at the Arizona Fall League now, was the hitting coach for AAA Norfolk during the season. So some of that is about players that are in the Arizona Fall League, like Greg Collin, Yusniel Diaz, Kyle Stowers. But he also really heaped praise on Robert Newstrom. Um, and he relayed a story that when Newstrom was up to was in a tight game against Storm at home, uh, was facing Phoenix Sanders, a Bulls reliever. Uh, before getting up to bat, Newstrom looked at an iPad and noticed that when 0-2, Sanders throws a curveball 100% of the time in his last 250 pitches up to that point. Newstrom ends up in an 0-2 count in the next at bat. Sanders throws him a curveball, and Newstrom hits a walk-off home run. So that kind of insight is really interesting to hear. Um, and it you know makes us think a lot of things about Robert Newstrom, which we'll get into in a little bit when we talk about the Rule 5 drafts. But you know, talking about some of these articles that are over at MassInSports.com now, he also relays a story about how Kyle Stowers managed to make an adjustment against Shane Baz, the one of the top pitching prospects in baseball, and hit a 98-mile-an-hour fastball the other way for a home run at Durham after striking out on the same pits in his previous at bat. So, Bob, I'll just uh, jump in with your thoughts here. I know that you've read those pieces. Uh, what did you think about the insight that Gibbons was giving? Yeah, I was. I enjoyed reading those articles for sure. I mean, Tim Gibbons, this could be the new hitting coach at the Baltimore Orioles. I have a feeling that could be the way they go, but great to hear. You know, love the insight. Robert Newstrom sounds like a smart guy. You know, another one of these guys that's willing to look at the video, look at the the analytics and the statistics and, and use them to his advantage. So that was a great story there. And again, Stowers seems like he's very adaptive and can make adjustments. And that's, I think that's important in today's game is being able to make adjustments, you know, at bat to at bat. And I loved hearing that. Yeah. I'm back here. I think, um, I don't know. Every single episode now we run into this, um, my internet, uh, Xfinity is not going to be a sponsor of the show anytime soon. Um, yeah, that article is fantastic. It's been like a whole series. He had uh, some quotes about Greg Cullen in there as well, that rock's been stretching this out. You know, it's, it's slow time for Orioles news. So stretching those, quotes in a couple of different uh, articles there, but I really loved uh, the very last line of that when Tim Gibbons says he's a guy that I think talking about Robert Newstrom that I think can contribute in Baltimore for a long time with Stowers and Rutschman. Like that's fantastic to hear from these guys. Uh, and I honestly believe we talked about before when we you know mentioned you know Matt Blood and his praise for guys like Joey Ortiz and Kyle Bradish. Like these guys aren't just going to hype up players for no reason. Uh, you know, Robert Newstrom's not even in the AFL. He's not working with uh, Gibbons right now. So for, for Gibbons to put that kind of praise on Newstrom, uh, I absolutely love it because this is a guy that no one was talking about two years ago uh, or last year. He wasn't at the outside. He's a guy like no one's talking about, just minor league filler. And now this is a guy who we're going to be talking about later in the episode of do the Orioles protect him on the 40-man roster or not. And that's extremely exciting. The outfield, the outfield and pitching took tremendous leaps this year in the system. And it was really fun to see. Yeah, and I'm looking at his quotes now on Greg Collin, and one of the things that we've kind of been waiting to see, and unfortunately we didn't get to see much of Collin this year, is what is there in the bat? Because there was a question of does he have a little bit more raw power? 
uh, than what he had shown in the Braves organization before coming over as part of the Tommy Malone trade. Um, and here's some insight from Gibbons. He's a, he's a guy who's going to give you quality at bats. He'll spray the ball to all parts of the field. Not a big power guy or anything, but a guy like him with his repertoire plays in a lineup. He might not be a three or four hitter, but he can give you quality at bats, get on base, runs to base as well, and plays good defense. And it's just a good guy to have around. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. I mean, we know he has he's a guy that gives good at bats. He's got an on-base percentage that's more than 100 points higher than his batting average for double-A Bowie. You know, he's got a great walk rate, and he does, you know, Terran Vaver light a little bit, maybe very light, but uh, he's a solid guy who may be able to develop into a, a role player at some point. He's the kind of guy you throw into that number nine hole, and, I mean, that's your your second leadoff hitter. You know, you hear called a lot because he can get on base the wall. He can work deep at counts. Uh, and, like, yeah, he doesn't have an extreme amount of power, but when he connects on a ball, like, he can send one out of there. He's got a pretty violent swing at times, especially it looks like when he knows what pitch is coming and he connects on it. Uh, being a lefty, like, hitting at Camden Yards, hitting at Fenway Park, hitting at Yankee Stadium will help him out a lot. And I think uh, he could have a – he was a guy that said a couple weeks ago, like, get on the train, it's rolling out. That was my, my bold prediction here that – I think Greg Cullen is due for a big breakout next season. That's just that's my guy I'm hitching the wide to. Maybe not a future starter at the major league level, obviously, but someone who I think deserves a lot more attention. And I'm I'm glad Rock highlighted him in that article there. Yeah, me too. And you know, we ended up only seeing Cullen in 38 games this past season. The injuries really limited him. In that stretch, though, uh 259 batting average between three levels, which includes some work down to Florida Complex League in Del Marva but a 429 on base percentage. So that gives you a sense of how this is a guy that can really work the count, not to mention that he walked 31 times compared to 30 strikeouts. And pretty yeah, good we, defense too. So Yeah, he's, he's solid out there. And we know Elias is leaning more towards guys who put the ball in play and don't strike out so much, especially with this last draft. So he fits right in there. Yeah, exactly. And when you look at that, you know, what the Orioles are putting together at second base depth-wise, uh, guys like Colin – Taron Vavra, Connor Norby certainly fit that bill. Colin doesn't, you know, Colin's not a prospect in the sense of either of those guys. But if you look at someone who could be a little bit of a riser, I definitely think he's in that mix. Yeah. And the trade, it was Tommy Malone. Like that's who the Orioles traded to get him and AJ Graffinino. So that's, that's turning out to be a fantastic trade. Like even if Graffinino and Cullen never make the major leagues, it's, I think it's better, a higher quality AAA depth that at least Greg Cullen certainly is going to provide this organization, which we've seen the injuries pop up. And next thing you know, like we're scrounging the waiver wire for a starting second baseman. Like if you have a guy like Greg Cullen, that you know, you can turn to, that's a pretty solid option to have down there in AAA, especially when you look at some of the options that the Orioles had in AAA this year for middle infield. Like, I don't know how many Orioles fans are still holding out on like hope for Richie Martin bounce back anytime soon. So. Yeah. Both of those guys are, Better organizational filler than you would normally see in an Orioles organization. Uh, Colin, you know, he can seem like I think he, um, Gibbons mentioned he's a great teammate, great guy to be around. So that's good to have in the clubhouse. And AJ Graffinino, he's got that good glove, so people can learn from him there. So love to see it. Great Tommy Malone trade. Can't wait for the next one. You know, I'm thinking back to when we had Kyle Glazer on the show, and he mentioned that uh, something to the effect of that your bench doesn't win you a lot of games, but it can lose you a lot of games. I almost feel like you could apply the same thing to AAA depth when you look at an organization like the Orioles. And I, that's my one hope for next year among several other things 
is it that depth at AAA is better and you see a little bit better reinforcements coming up? Yeah, if your starting second baseman goes down for two weeks and you know you drop six, seven games over that two week stretch. I mean, by the end of the year, like I know baseball is a long season and you know it's hard it's hard to say you know late april game really counts but when you get down to the end of the year in this al east it's going to be tight races and when this team is finally competitive you know those five wins are probably going to mean a lot and so that could be the difference of having a quality depth option versus you know richie martin and mason mccoy's on there in triple a but definitely cool to see greg cullen get some hype i'm going to keep hyping him up all winter long because that's my new guy. I don't know. I don't know what it is. I'm attached my wagon to weird guys. Greg Cullen, you're the next one. Hey, and he's not going to do anything to make you uh, think differently. So, well, we're going to move in now to our big discussion of tonight's show, and one of our bigger discussions of the off season, which is how the Orioles are going to go about protecting players for the Rule Five Draft and who they might expose. There are a lot of solid players eligible for the Rule 5 draft this year. Last year's class was good, but I think in terms of the quality of prospects and the overall depth, that this class is even better than what 2020 was. So we talked about this before the show, and just to give you an example of who is Rule 5 eligible and who we think are locks, you're looking at D.L. Hall, Kyle Bradis, and Taryn Vavra. Hall is one of the top three prospects in the system one of the top 100 prospects overall in the game. Bradis and Vavra, depending on which list you look at, either one or both of them could be inside the top 10 ranking for the system. So the three of us kind of see those guys as absolutely, they're going to be protected, no offense or buts about it. So when you get beyond that, though, it does start to get interesting, which is who are the Orioles going to try to make room for? Who could other teams look at, especially if we do see the change? Uh, with the D8s implementing the National League, potentially. So there's a lot to go with, but I will circle back first to the top three, which are Hall, Braddis, and Vavra. And I'll start with Nick on this. Um, first off, is there really any sort of, you know, there's nothing that would really, I guess, stop you from thinking they should be protected. But what do you, what sort of role do you think that these guys would fill next year? Uh, I think Kyle Bradish, certainly all three are locked, but I think Kyle Bradish enters spring with a very legitimate shot at cracking the major league rotation. Uh, at Deal Hall, we talked about this a little bit before. Yes, he missed pretty much all year. He only pitched for what a month, maybe. Um, and yeah, like it's not great that he missed an entire year, obviously, but I don't really think it sets his timeline back too, too much. I don't know what work he's doing in Sarasota. Uh, it fall instructs, but it's something. Hopefully, he's back on the mound time soon, and he can enter 2022 healthy and ready to go from the jump. Because if so, I think Dio Hall can still end next year in the major leagues as long as he has a good uh, AAA stint, which I think will probably start the year. The game time work can get done in the offseason. training with a shot competing for a roster spot, but. Zach, you're muted. Nick is having internet issues there. We'll give him a minute to try to get back in. Uh, but I think I caught some of that uh, possibly about Hall starting at AAA, which I could see as long as he's healthy because he was pretty much on the cusp of getting moved up, I think, when he got hurt because he was so dominant at AA. Yeah, I agree with that. Or I could see him being like the Kyle Bradish, get a few starts, dominate, then get moved up pretty quickly to AAA along those lines. Maybe um, Michael Bauman 
type of ascent to the major leagues at the end of next year with hopefully a better start to the season than Bauman had. But yeah, and I think Bradish, like Nick said, is going to compete for a starting rotation spot. And if he doesn't get it, maybe he make, gets a, pull, a bullpen job to begin. And or worst case, he starts back in AAA, and I think he's pretty much the first man up as soon as there's an injury or poor performance. And Taron Vavra, I think he's definitely going to start at AAA as long as he's healthy after uh, going down early this past season. And I think once Jemai Jones is uh, either proves that he's the guy or not, I think Vavra will get a shot at some point in the second half of the year to play some second base, maybe a little bit of shortstop, maybe a pinch in the outfield if it's needed. But I think all three of these guys should definitely see the major leagues in 2022. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't see any reason why we wouldn't see all three of them as long as they're healthy next year. And, you know, once in the same mold as Hall, probably getting a triple A, if not for the timing of when he was hurt and for the fact that he ended up missing the rest of the season. I think Bavra was in the same boat. I think if he had not had the injuries that forced, you know, a couple of IL stints, he probably would not have been in Bowie for all that long and would have been promoted. I think he was the type of player the Orioles would have found a way to get at bats for at Norfolk. Um, and, you know, we'll have to see how he handles higher competition, but everything we've heard about him is that he's such a smart, advanced hitter. He's shown that at points in his career. So I feel like he's a guy that if he gets to triple A, he's going to handle it well. Yeah, I completely agree, especially with the, the differences in the triple A ball. They're a little more lively. I think he will be a guy that can take advantage of that and really – spread the ball out, maybe even hit more power once he gets to the upper levels. Yeah, exactly. Now, when we get beyond those three, though, there are still players who are going to be protected, but I think you have to weigh their cases a little bit differently because there may be some reasons why you would not want to protect them or why you would want to think about a little bit more and compare them to other players in the system. And we'll go with someone we were just talking about a few minutes ago, which is Robert Newstrom. Uh, Newstrom was a guy that I think had been ridden off a little bit coming into 2021 because the Orioles had added so much outfield depth, uh, really from the start of the 2019 season leading up to 2021, that it seemed like Newstrom was going to get lost in the shuffle. Gets off to a slow start at double A, hits a ball about 600 feet at Hartford, and then next thing you know, turns a corner, becomes really one of the best power hitters in the system, gets promoted to triple A, still flashes power there. And although he ended the year on a cold streak, still good numbers across the board for Robert Newstrom. Um, Bob, just kind of if you had to look at Newstrom right now in comparison to the existing outfield depth that the Orioles have, where do you think he would fit in? Is he a guy that you would protect? I, I definitely think he's the guy I would protect if I, was the, if I was the Orioles. And I think they're kind of tipped their hand here, especially with the Tim Gibbons quotes that have gotten out there and him saying that he envisions him in the likes of Stowers and Rutschman. So I think they will protect him. And I think he made it a pretty easy decision with uh, the way he played this year, especially after that first month or so. I, I see him as a guy who makes DJ Stewart expendable, makes you know Anthony Santander tradable if anyone's willing to give up anything of value for him. And I think he's a guy that could make the major league roster out of spring training because he's not a guy you're going to manipulate service time for. You don't mind if he's more of a bench bat to start the year and just use his power off the bench at the H or in a corner outfield. So yeah, I think he's definitely a guy that gets protected and I think he's going to see a lot of time in the major leagues in 2022. I like his upside a little bit better than Stewart's at this point, because I think he's a better defender than Stewart. And oh, I think yeah. he gives you more power. Yeah, you might look at Stewart and say, well, Stewart, you know, has a good on-base percentage and he can draw walks. And while I'll, I'll grant you that 
Stewart might have more of the type of plate approach you're looking for. Newstrom can do more damage with the bat. So I, I would pre- I would prefer to see Newstrom in the role that DJ Stewart had this year uh, next season than I would to see DJ Stewart back in that role. Yeah, Newstrom's no slouch with the on base either. I think he's got it between 10 to 11% walk rate, which isn't too shabby. Yeah, so I, Newstrom, I think, is somebody that the Orioles should look at protecting. And not to mention that I think that if they leave him unprotected and you see a DH added in the National League, someone's going to take him high in the draft because he's going to be a good option to try that spot. But even if they don't take, you know, implement the DH, I still think that somebody could grab Newstrom because good left-handed power um, and can play, you know, a, at least a capable left field. That has some value off your bench. Uh, all right, I'll jump in. I don't know. I guess we're talking about Robert Newstrom. Um, yeah. <laughs> this internet's going to go out again, uh, I'm sure. So, um I think for me, like, I'm going to say, yeah, he gets protected. But uh, part of me also thinks that, like, this is the, the Baltimore Orioles. So I'm going to be kind of, like, guarded here and say, like, they're going to roll DJ Stewart in the opening day lineup next year, which, like, that means I'm checked out on opening day. But I'm going to say, yes, Neutrum gets protected. Uh, but you do have Diaz, using Diaz, Austin Hayes, Jorge Mateo uh, coming back on the uh, McKenna Mullins, Nevin, Santander, and Stewart. There's a lot there, but I don't think there's any way you can go into 2022 with Santander and you Stewart on this return again. Uh, I'm honestly, I don't know if you can test or fives the next couple of months. To be really honest, uh, you know, he hurt again, probably shut down. Um, and you guys can talk about this more action about Ryan McKenna is using just a major level. It just felt like maybe it has nothing to do anymore, but it's like the organization just refused to give him every day at bat even that he should have. So, I think, I want to say I'm going to protect him, but um, you guys hear me? Barely. <laughs> All right. I want to say I'm going to get protected then. So in that, um, kind of looking at that style of hitter, I'm going to go over to someone else, which is Patrick Dorian. Uh, put up very good numbers at Double A Bowie. Really, one of the best power hitters in the system this past season. Can play a pretty capable third base. So has a good arm over there. Can also play a little bit of first. Now, some of the concerns that you know we've heard about from listeners with Dorian is well, he's a 25 year old putting up those type of numbers at Double A. Um, we hadn't heard of him before this season, and he comes on the scene and has a good year. But is it really sustainable? And he did get a cup of coffee at AAA at the end of the year, but ultimately was not tested against pitchers at that level for a prolonged stretch. I'm on the fence with this one. Personally, I kind of lean towards protecting him because I like what he does at third base and I like the power, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts about this, Bob. I think the only way I could see that him getting protected is if they DFA Ryland Bannon and kind of give him that spot on the 40-man roster, but I don't really see that happening. I don't think he's going to get protected, but I definitely can see him being a guy that gets selected in the Rule 5 draft by somebody and given a shot, at least to win a bench role uh, for a team. And I think actually him spending most of the year in AA might play into the Orioles' favor a little bit. Maybe if he gets more time in AAA and proves that he can hit that upper-level pitching, then he come he becomes more um, you know viable to a, a different major league team or even to the Orioles. But as it is, he got a little bit of taste of AAA, and he struggled. It was very short sample size, but that might actually be able to keep him in uh, AAA for us next year. Yeah, that, that's true. You know, the fact that he was not 
you know, exposed to AAA much other than for basically the final week of the season could help the Orioles a little bit. He's also not out at the Arizona Fall League. So that would be another place theoretically where more eyes would be on him. You know, I do think, though, while I personally would lean towards protecting him, I have a hard time seeing where he would fit on the 40-man roster unless you mentioned the possibility of DFA and Ryland Bannon or a Trey Mancini trade. You know, if you think you're going to trade Mancini at some point in the offseason, then having Dorian there is sort of an alternative to Tyler Nevin. And who's going to fill that first base, corner infield, corner outfield, DH-type reserve role because you're going to need somebody to take that over if you get rid of Mancini and don't bring in a full-time DH. Yeah, that's a good point. That could definitely be a way they could sneak him on to the 40-man. And was it uh, Tim Gibbons that was talking about Phil Nevin's defense – or not, Tyler Nevin's defense um, in an article recently, um, which I don't really – I don't see that, but maybe they're – they're looking to get him more involved in the in the team next year. Yes, he did say that. I think it was over at Masson as well. And, you know, because there's always been doubts, I think, about Nevin's defense at any position other than first base, um, even though he's kind of been rolled out all over the field throughout his career between first, third, and two corner outfield spots. But if the Orioles feel like Nevin is – Nevin, who, by the way, is already on the 40-man roster, if they feel like he can contribute something – a little bit more defensively, then, you know, he's going to stick around for a while. Yeah, absolutely. And I think he's kind of like a Mark Trumbo defensively, but maybe if they can see the metrics and he's actually not as bad as it seems, then that that's going to provide some value. Yeah, I could see that. Now, we should mention there's a lot of players on here that I don't know that the three of us necessarily see getting protected, but that we still want to highlight. One of them is Adam Hall. Coming into this year, consensus, probably top 15 prospect in the system, had had a really good 2020 or 2019 season at Delmarva. Um, 2021, I think the big question mark for him was, is he going to drive the ball more? He didn't. His offensive numbers slumped a little bit. Um, And really, the only thing that we saw from Adam Hall this year that was a positive that we had seen in the past is that he runs well and he steals bases at a high rate. So looking at where Adam Hall is right now in his development, Bob, do you think that if he is left off the 40-man roster, the Orioles risk losing him? The only way I could see a team taking him is if someone else picks up Terrence Gore on a minor league contract and you need a speedster for that 26th man to be a pinch runner. But no, I really don't see it happening. He struggled in high A. How are you going to expect him to hit major league pitching? I, I just can't see it. Yeah, the only way it would work is if you felt like you could leave Hall on your roster all year as that 26th man who is basically your pinch runner specialist, gives you a little bit of versatility on defense. And then next year, once you've cleared that one year on the roster, maybe you think about putting him down at double A or triple A to see if the bat develops a little bit more. But it feels like every you know offseason, there's a minor league free agent out there that could fill a very similar role and give you a lot more roster flexibility than on a major league phase rule five pick can. So I feel like if the Orioles, you know, leave Hall unprotected, there might be some risk because of his prospect pedigree, but not a substantial one. Yeah, because I can't even see the 2021 Orioles being able to keep a guy like Adam Hall on the roster the whole season. So if that team couldn't, I don't know who could. 
Yeah, I agree with that. Um, and, and not to mention that I just, it's hard for me to tell sometimes how valued steals are in baseball anymore. So it's like, if you're looking at him as a, you know, a base stealer, well, does your team necessarily need that? Right. Yeah. And especially with the way the game is going, speed is becoming less and less important. It seems like stolen bases continue to decline the most uh, couple of years. Looking at another infielder who fits this mold, but for a different reason, that would be Caden Grenier. Grenier's reputation throughout his professional career, and he showed it this year in Bowie, was excellent defensive shortstop, can also play a really good second base. Occasionally surprises you with his power to play, but overall just doesn't really deliver with the bat. Strikes out a lot, doesn't hit for a high average, doesn't draw a lot of walks. We saw that this year, and while you know, we saw Grenier firsthand at Bowie, came away impressed with the defense, all the reports we heard on the defense during the season were glowing. Um, the fact is that hit tool is still a major question mark. He's Rule 5 eligible this offseason, and much like Hall, I think that if there is a team looking to take him, it would have to be for that very specialized role, which is defensive replacement. Yeah, but the thing, I think he's more likely to get taken. I still don't think he will, but at least with him, he has you know performed decently at double A. He got a taste of triple A at the very tail end, and that glove is really good. So, and shortstop is a position where if your glove is good, you don't really need too much offense. There's a ton of swing and miss in his game, but he does have a little bit of pop. Um, I think he could serve. I think he would be more likely to get picked and survive the year than a guy like Adam Hall, but. I still can't see it happening personally. Yeah, I think defense is definitely more valued than speed is. And in some respects, you could say that a guy like Grenier is maybe a lower ceiling Richie Martin because Martin had been a former first rounder um, when he was picked up by the Orioles. So I think that made a little bit of a difference in terms of how he was perceived compared to when Grenier is now. But I think that defense would be valued a little bit more. The question that I just still have is if he's not going to hit, Again, how much are you going to value the defense? Especially when you have an offseason where you have players like Freddie Galvis, Jose Iglesias, and maybe Angleton Simmons that can be had on relatively affordable one-year major league deals. Yeah, the Richie Martin comparison is a really good one. And, yeah, those guys could be had cheaply, and they've proven that they got the great defense at the major league level and at least can hit a tiny bit. So, yeah, that's a great point and should keep Grenier in the Orioles system. Yeah, so we'll go over to the pitching now because there are a lot of close calls among the pitchers. One of them is uh, two players that Nick and I talked about last week, and that's Blaine Knight and Cody Sedlock. We had a listener question about, you know, would we protect those players? The thing that is challenging for me about the two of them looking at their cases individually, I'll start with Sedlock. Sedlock has slipped through the last two Rule 5 drafts without being chosen. I thought that he was going to get picked after turning in a pretty solid 2019 season, getting through the year healthy. Didn't happen. We didn't hear about him in 2020, so it was not a surprise that he didn't get taken. So, Bob, I'll pose this question to you. Can the Orioles leave Cody Sedlock unprotected for a third time and still keep him in the system? I actually don't think so. I I still don't think there's much reason to protect him. Like you said, he didn't get picked the last two times, and it's not like he lit the world on fire this year. He had some success, but he also had his struggles as well. But he's 26 years old, and he's pretty close to major league level. So I could see him getting taken. I don't know if he would survive the year, but only because he's more 
you know, closer to the major leagues with uh, the way he pitched. I could see him getting taken, but what do you think? I mean, I could almost see a team looking at him in kind of that same way the Orioles looked at Max Roller and Tyler Wells last year, which is if nothing else, maybe we have a multi-inning reliever on our hands for the early part of the season. So Sedlock could kind of be in that situation where he is taken, makes an opening day roster, but you kind of know that he might not last the whole year either because he's just not going to prove up for the challenge right away um, and a team's going to be ready to move on from him quickly or a team may have some reasons that it needs to sort out its pitching depth, maybe because of injuries, players start coming back, and a guy like Sedlock becomes expendable. So I, I guess it's almost too, it's, it's hard to tell how other teams are perceiving him because like I said, I thought he was going to get picked in 2019 when he got left unprotected, but he didn't. Yeah, exactly. So it's really hard to get a read on that. And I think Blaine Knight's kind of similar, even though, you know, this is the first time I think that he's eligible eligible to be taken. I could see him getting taken too, like we thought with Sedlock that first time, because he's got the good mid-90s fastball with a, a pretty tight slider that is a good combination. I could see him pitching out of somebody's bullpen and performing pretty well. Knight's stuff definitely excites me more than Sedlock's does. And when I watch Knight pitch, I definitely think to myself, future reliever, because that fastball, like you said, can run mid to upper 90s, and it's really good when it's on. And he's got two you know, secondaries that he can work with, and even if just one of them works, outing over outing out of the bullpen, he's going to fare pretty well. But I do want to ask you about his downturn towards the end of the year at Norfolk. He really struggled there over the last few weeks of the season, seemed to get in this, into a slump that he couldn't just you know, he couldn't get out of. Do you think that that was more experienced hitters uh, finding flaws that hitters at high A and double A couldn't? Was it him being tired or maybe was it a combination of the two? It may be a combination. I think it was more of just he wasn't hitting his spots, especially with the slider. But like Nick said on last week's episode, you know, he just had a child and I think if you look at his numbers before his baby was born and after, you're going to see a pretty big difference. So maybe that had something to do with it. I'm not sure exactly, but yeah, it's tough to see. I mean, it's all about the command of him. The stuff is good. I think if he leaves it too much in the middle of the plate, they can hit it like we saw when we saw him pitching double A Bowie and when we all went there. So I'm not sure what to think. Yeah, that, that particular day, what stood out to me was that he was having problems locating his chains up in a slider. And when he did get him in the strike zone, he just left him basically right in the middle of the strike zone. It was either that it was right down the middle or it was, you know, far enough outside the strike zone. The hitters were just laying off. Yeah. And it seems like hitters these days, one of their favorite pitches is a hanging breaking ball right over the middle of the plate. Yeah, exactly. So I think that there's two borderline cases there in Sedlock and Knight. Ultimately, those are two players that I. We'll, won't be surprised if they're protected, but I also won't be surprised if they're both left off or only one of them is protected. Completely agree. So now we'll talk about one of our favorite stories from this year, which is Felix Batista. Put up huge numbers uh, between Aberdeen, Bowie, Norfolk. We thought we were going to see him towards the end of the year. Big six foot seven, six foot eight, still waiting for confirmation on that. Right hander who throws hard. Sometimes you don't know where that fastball is going. But again, when he's locked in, probably one of the best relievers, if not the best reliever in the Orioles system this year. Got a little bit of time at AAA, 
I think the three of us were all hoping that he was going to get a cup of coffee in September. That ultimately didn't happen. But, Bob, I want to ask your thoughts on Batista. Do you think that uh, he's added to the 40-man roster? That's going to be my surprise pick. I do think he's going to be added to the 40-man, or at least depending on how he does in the fall instructs, which we can't see, because he was one of the few guys from the upper minors, if maybe the only guy. I think it was mostly just guys who at least played most of their season in, in single-A ball. But he was he started in single-A, but he hit double-A and triple-A, and he's at the fall instructs. So I think they're kind of giving it a final, you know, look and see what they want to do with him. But I think he's going to do enough to get added to the 40 man. They added Isaac Matson last year and I could see some similarities there. So let's give him a shot. Let's see what the big guy can do. That's a good comparison, actually. You know, Batista throws harder than Matson does, but I think that the comparison between the two is pretty apt. One thing I wanted to note with Batista, because this stands out to me looking at his stat line, the walk per nine innings rate, Overall, 5.8 in 46 and two-third innings. That's pretty high. But what's interesting is that it actually dropped a little bit as the year went on. So he had a 6% uh, walk per per nine rate at Aberdeen, followed by 7.4 at Bowie, and then 4.4 at Norfolk. He actually threw mornings at Norfolk than he did at either of the two levels before that. So... It seems like the walks actually got a little bit better to a certain extent as the year went on. Yeah, that is a good good uh, observation. I think he just needs to trust his stuff a little bit more. If you see his hit per nine uh, stats, hitters clearly, at least in the lower levels, could not hit him whatsoever. It's just a matter of get the ball over the plate. You either strike him out or get weak contact, and we'll see if that can continue on. I think if as long as he can keep it under five walks per nine, he could – potentially be a pretty effective reliever. Yeah, I, I think if nothing else, you're looking at a guy that could come into the game, you know, mid-innings and get you some strikeouts in the key spot. Yeah, absolutely. So another name that I want to throw out there is uh, Nick Vespi. He's out in the Arizona Fall League now. The Orioles just signed him to a minor league deal to bring him back this year. Vespi was one of the better relievers in the Orioles farm system early in the year, but then was hurt for almost two months at Bowie came back was barely back and went to Norfolk where he struggled a little bit. Now the fact that he's out in the Arizona fall league could mean that this is the Orioles testing him to see if he makes a 40 man. It could be that they're adding him to the 40 man. They just want to see how he does with, you know, higher competition or it might not mean anything at all. Uh, Time will tell there, but Bob, where do you, stand with Nick Vespi possibly making the 40-man roster or not? You know, I thought he could be a sleeper to get protected, um, especially when he was added to the Arizona Fall League. I thought maybe this was a chance for him to earn that spot. But him and the other guys, Cameron Bishop and Logan Gillespie, they're str- I mean, AFL is definitely a hitter's league, so and it's short sample size, so you can't take too much away from it. But they all have ERAs in the 10s, I believe, so – not exactly lighting the world on fire down there. And I, they already signed him to a minor league contract, I think. So maybe yes. they feel safe in the fact that he could, you know, not get taken. But I don't think he will get added to the 40-man. That's my final prediction. Yeah, I think it's going to be tough just because of the number of potential bullpen options that the Orioles have uh, at their disposal this year where they're going to have to make tough decisions on the 40-man. I, I kind of see Vespi slipping through the cracks. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't think we won't see him at the major league level next year if he sticks in the system. 
and goes back to Triple H start of the year. I absolutely think that there's, you know, maybe better than 50% chance that you see him because we know how the Orioles' bullpen can turn over every season. And right now, you know, we got a long way to go this offseason, but I don't see that being any different in 2022. But if you have to make that decision right now, I don't think Vespi's added. Yeah, not to say that I don't think he could be a you know effective reliever at some point in time, but I just don't think it works as far as the numbers go. Now, Felky Peralta was also signed to a minor league deal at the same time that Vespi was. That signing was announced. Peralta was, you know, we've talked about him repeatedly on this show. Seemingly, his career was done after four stints at high A. Frederick couldn't get out of there. Basically goes out and pitches really well at every level this year. And we saw what makes him so good when he's on, which is that high 90s fastball, good secondaries. He was locating it probably as well, if not better, than he has before. But yet, I think he may find himself somewhere close to that Blaine Knight, closer to that Blaine Knight, Cody Sedlock end of the conversation than the Kyle Bradis DL Hall end of it. He's not a lock by any means, but he's someone you got to strongly consider. So, Bob, where, where would you put Peralta right now? Yeah, I would absolutely put him in the Blaine Knight, Cody Sedlock trio. Those three are pretty similar to me. And I think if one of them gets protected, it will be Peralta because I, I think the Orioles like him. They've stuck with him. You know, even with the the front office changeover, they've stuck with him. They seem to like him. They keep, you know, pumping him up, put him out there. And if these guys are going to be relievers, I think Peralta has the best stuff and the best chance to be a, a dominant reliever with his high 90s fastball and decent break stuff. So I don't think at the end of the day he's going to be protected, but I, I think if one of them was going to be protected, it would be him. Yeah, I could see that because – you know, with how much Peralta had struggled at Frederick, if the Orioles had released him before the 2021 season, I don't think anybody would have looked at it and been scratching their heads like, why did they do this? It would have been, oh, it's the same. The guy has, you know, good stuff, but just couldn't get out of high A. Yet they held on to him to this point. In a way, I, that's kind of the reason that I hope they protect him is that you've come this far. Why not see what you can get out of him next year by putting him on the 40-man and I would say at this rate, giving him an earnest shot to go into spring training and compete for a bullpen job. Yeah, I mean, could you imagine how much of a dagger it would be if he left unprotected, gets taken by someone in the Rule 5, and then dominates out of someone's bullpen, kind of like a Tyler Wells, and you lose him after all that work you put in. So that's the worst-case scenario, but hopefully hopefully he gets a shot. Yeah, just to add a little bit of context to Peralta's struggles um, leading up to this year, he first went to Frederick in 2017, posted a 5.42 ERA there. Went back in 2018 in over 50 innings, put up a 6.22 ERA. Went back in 2019, so he had three stints there and not four. And in 47 two-thirds innings, had a 5.48 ERA. Ended up going to Bowie this year with a 4.53 ERA, but 52 strikeouts across 45 and two-thirds innings. And then struck out 46 batters in 47 and two-thirds at Norfolk. So pretty consistent this season, level to level, uh, which was great to see. I think that if you look at how he pitched at Norfolk as a little bit of a test, he handled it well. Yeah, he did. He definitely had his moments, and it seemed like, which we continue to talk about him as a potential reliever because it, he screamed that the whole way through, and I'm kind of shocked that they've left him in a starter's role this whole time. But it seemed like even in his AAA starts, he would get off to a great start and then kind of lose it a little bit and get beaten around later on. So 
that kind of goes to the fact that if you just give him an inning or two, he could be effective. We'll go now to what I know is going to be, I don't want to say it's a close call, but one of the calls we would not have seen going this direction just a few months ago, and that's Kevin Smith. If you had asked us back in July, are the Orioles going to protect Kevin Smith? The, the answer would have been absolutely yes. They're going to protect him. He belongs in that class with Hall, Braddis, and Vavra. But then he really struggled over the last two and a half months or so at AAA, uh, was struggling with his command, giving up more home runs than he had at AA. It just, the stuff just did not look good. He wasn't locating it well. But we also have to remember that it was a little over a year ago that the Orioles traded Miguel Castro to get him. And up until mid-July, that trade was looking like a clear win for the Orioles, I think. Um, and you could have looked at Smith as someone who, you know, was going to enter 2022 with a case to make the rotation out of spring training. Now, as it is, if the Orioles do protect him, you're likely going to be sending him back to Norfolk to see if he can correct whatever went wrong there over the final months of the season. So, Bob, where does your assessment of whether the Orioles should protect Smith stand compared to where it may have been at the beginning of July? It's a tough one. It's definitely a tough one. Um, I think whatever they decide is going to say a lot about what the organization thinks of Kevin Smith. If they don't protect him, I think it means that this this problem that he had in the last you know few months, they don't really see it as something that's easily correctable, at least. And and if another team takes him, I don't I don't know. That's going to be tough to rely on someone like that with the control issues. And he had a velocity drop as well. How could you take him? and have confidence that you'll be able to keep him on your roster the whole year unless you see something that is fixable. And I think if that's there, the Orioles will see it and they'll protect him. So if they think Justin Ramsey can come up and get back in touch with him in AAA and and iron it out, then they'll protect him. And if not, then I don't think they will. Yeah, Smith's command issues were something that was on our minds coming into this year. Eric Longenhagen talked about it when he was on our show. And in 2019, when Smith broke out, was a good season between high A and double A in the Mets system. His walks did tick up when he got to double A, but it was kind of easy to dismiss because it was a fairly small sample size. Late in the year, high A to double A is a tough jump for any player, but I think for pitchers especially. So I didn't want to read. I knew that the command concerns were there, and it was something that I was going to be watching this past season, but it was not that pressing of a concern for me until he got to Norfolk and the walks just skyrocketed. Yeah, he couldn't throw the, the breaking ball for a strike to save his life. And then hitters would sit fastball and then they were hitting home runs off of him. So definitely something he's got to figure out if he wants to make it to the major leagues even. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like I said, I think that if the – and I think you were absolutely right about this. If the Orioles protect him, it's because they think that whatever went wrong late in the year is something that be, can be corrected and that they can kind of unlock the things that they liked about Kevin Smith when they made that trade with the Mets back in 2020. If they leave him unprotected, it's either because they don't feel they can correct it or they feel that none of the other teams feel that they can correct it and that that 40-man roster spot is better spent on someone that's more likely to be taken. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I think is the case here. Yeah, and Vivek uh, chiming in, uh, Kevin Smith's definitely the most borderline player when it comes to Wolf 5 protection. I completely agree with that. 
Yeah, I, it has to be. It's definitely the one where I'm like, when they announce this, that's going to be the first name I look for to see if he was included or not. Yeah. So just kind of looking at the – we have the list here of players that are eligible in front of us. I'm not going to get into the whole thing because there's some names on there that I don't think are you know necessarily going to enter the discussion. But there's a few others here that I want to note. Um, Gray Fenter, who was taken by the Cubs last year in the Rule 5 draft, couldn't ended up not making the team and was actually returned to the Orioles before spring training ended. Went to Bowie this year and ended up having a lot of ups and downs. There were times where he looked really good, especially late in the year. He came on fairly strong, but really struggled for much of this season. Uh, do the Orioles protect Fenter knowing that he's been taken once or do they leave him unprotected? He's definitely not going to get protected, but I do think he had a sneaky good second half of the season. So I think they're going to hope that he doesn't get taken and they can kind of hold on to him and try to build off of that next year. But there's no way they're, they're going to protect him this year, especially if they didn't last year. Yeah, I agree. I think there's going to have a hard time fitting him in with some of the other options you know, available to them at this point. Uh, you mentioned this earlier. The guys that are out in the Arizona Fall League, Connor Lopritz, Logan Gillespie, Cameron Bissop, all three of them, I think, were on our radar a little bit more when they went out there. And as I talked about earlier with Nick Vespi, I don't know if um, you know the Arizona Fall League is going to make much of a difference one way or the other. But on those three guys, is there anyone in that group that you could see being protected or you think they're all three left off? I think they're all three left off. But if, if one was going to be protected, I think it would be Bishop. He had a really strong start to the year. He almost kind of reminds you of John Means a tiny bit with the, his repertoire. So if anyone, it would be him. But no, I don't think so. Yeah, Bishop is the one that I would protect because I think if he had not gotten hurt, he's a guy that would have been at Norfolk this year. And, you know, like you said, he's got that little bit of, you know, lefty, good fastball command uh, mold that, you know, John Means was able to break through with. But I think all three of them ultimately don't make it. Uh, the Mad Behemoth is chiming in here with a question via YouTube. Uh, Gray Fenter is eligible for minor league free agency. Was he re-signed? I have not seen anything announced. I know that Ritz Dubroff over at baseball or Baltimore baseball did a piece recently talking about the Wolf five draft. And he did mention Fenter um, in that com- in that article, but I don't know if that means that Fenter was protected or if he was listed there because of the possibility that he could be. Yeah. I hadn't seen anything about him being resigned either. I think the Orioles will want to, but maybe he's going to, you know, look around and see what his other options are before he decides on that. Yeah, we were kind of in a similar spot last year with Brian Gonzalez. Uh, he was eligible for minor league free agency. He seemed like he was kind of that borderline type, will the Orioles protect him, will they not? Ultimately, they didn't re-sign him, and he ended up in the Rockies, signing with the Rockies. Yeah, I could definitely see the similarities there. So, Bob, before we wrap up this discussion, is there anybody that you want to highlight one way or the other, um, either because you think they're sneaky picks to be protected or just because you think they're – maybe worth noting as players that should be on our radar for 2022. I think David LeBron is an interesting name. You know, he kind of, he got a little bit of taste of AAA and he pitched pretty decently this year, mostly as a reliever after being a starter the, the in 2019. I don't think he's protected, but I think he's in, definitely an interesting name going into 2022 and shout out to Ramon Rodriguez, who's eligible and, and he's playing pretty well in the Arizona Fall League, probably playing the best out of any of the Orioles representatives. So, the guy that we didn't really know about, even at the end of the year, he's he's hanging in there and, and showing his skills. 
Yeah, I definitely like what Rodriguez is showing out there, and I agree that LeBron is interesting. Um, Greg Collin, we talked about him a lot earlier. He is Rule 5 eligible this offseason. I don't think he's going to get chosen just because there's not much of a track record there with him because he did miss so much time this uh, past season, but he's definitely somebody in 2022 that could break out. And another name I would throw in there is a player that came over from Atlanta in that trade for Tommy Malone, which is AJ Graffinino. Graffinino has struggled to stay healthy in his career. And there's been a lot of questions about the bat, but you know, not unlike Caden Grenier, a lot of praise is going around for his defense at shortstop and with good reason. So, Although I think his case is a lot different than Grenier's because he doesn't have as much time at the higher levels in the minor leagues. Um, I still think Graffinino is a guy that if he's healthy next year and is playing somewhere, at least semi-regularly, could make an impression. Yeah, I could see him having a bit of a bounce back, especially, you know, he missed 2020 with the pandemic and he's had all those injuries earlier in his minor league career. So he kind of, you know, this year was just about being healthy and getting the games in, and maybe next year he bounces back a little bit. Well, that does it for our discussion on the 40-man roster. We'll circle back between now and the Bull 5 drafts, probably give more in-depth preview once the Orioles make the decision on players that we think could be chosen from the Orioles or players that the Orioles could target. Uh, they're expected to have the first pick of the Rule 5 draft whenever the Rule 5 draft does take place this offseason. Uh, it's one of the areas of baseball that is uncertain right now because of the looming expiration of the collective bargaining agreement. But hopefully soon we'll have more concrete information to talk about here. But for next week, so we've got a pretty big guest lined up and we're going to have a fun topic to talk about. You want to share that with our listeners, Bob? Yeah, second time around, John Mioli of the Baltimore Sun going to talk about his top 10 Orioles prospects that he did for uh, Baseball America a week or two ago. So that should be fun. And maybe we can kind of try to get out some information from him about the 11 through 30. Yeah, absolutely. We'll talk about the top 10, about the best tools rankings that John did for Baseball America, and hopefully get a little bit of information about the 11 through 30 or anything else that John's working on. Because as uh, our listeners know, we're fans of John's work over at the Baltimore Sun. So we look forward to being joined by him next week. Uh, and we'll look forward to having Nick back on then uh, for the whole show. So for Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens, oh, so hold on one second. Uh, be sure to check out BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com for all the latest articles on the Orioles, Ravens, Terps, high school sports, and more. Join the discussion board there. Interact with uh, fellow contributors as well as BSL writers. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at BSL on the Verge. We will be back next Monday with John Mioli, the Baltimore Sun. For Nick Stevens and Bob Phelan, this is Zach Spedden. Thank you for listening to On the Birds.